welcome to the third episode of the Historic Present Podcast, hosted by myself, Charlie Gordon, and my good friend, Jonah Howe. Jonah. Hello. Hello. In today's episode, we move on from the struggles of the Weimar Republic into a more prosperous and successful era of the Golden Years, from 1924 to 1929. But all that glitters is not gold. Let's set the scene. After a horrid 1923 in Germany, with the French occupation of the Ruhr and the complete economic collapse through hyperinflation, things are starting to take a turn for the better. Gustav Stresemann is now Chancellor. He was by far a more skillful politician than Ebert, and as a right winger, he had more support. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna really paint the picture and go deep into this more successful Weimar Republic after the rancid year of 1923. So, Charlie. Yes. In terms of political opposition, Weimar achieve? Well, even the politics of Weimar Germany became more stable. There were no more attempted revolutions after 1923, and one politician who had been a leading opponent uh, against Eber in 1923, said that the Republic is beginning to settle and the German people are becoming more reconciled to the way things are. By 1928, the moderate parties had 136 more seats in the Reichstag than the radical parties. Hitler's Nazis gained less than 3% of the vote in the 1920 election. That was 12 seats. Just as importantly, some of the parties who had cooperated in the revolution of 1918 began to cooperate again. Okay, so just summing up what you said there, Charlie, there were no more attempted political revolutions after 1923. Of course, last week we went into the Spartacus Revolution and the Cap Putsch. Between 1924 and 1928, parties supporting the Republic grew in seats, which is obviously a good sign. And moderate parties had more seats in the Reichstag than the radical parties. So already, it's, it's looking quite good. However, yes. like you mentioned, there were still 3% of the seats in favour of the Nazis. And this isn't that much, but it still shows that they have a voice in the... In the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in Parliament. And, you know, one thing we have to remember as well is proportional representation. As a result this of is proportional representation, unusual. it made um, extremist and um, politically polarised parties um, gain more influence yeah. uh, in politics in Germany. And as we mentioned last week, this was a major problem uh, in the constitution. So it's very easy. So, for example, if you're writing an essay, it's good to link it together, those sort of things. Parties opposing the Republic still had seats. 30% of the votes went to these parties. And finally, Hindenburg was elected president in 1925. And Hindenburg was famously against democracy. So you've got the ultimate leader of a democratic system who's anti-democracy, which, as we see later, doesn't help democracy at all. Okay, no, Charlie, moving on, to, moving on to the economy. Things had to change in terms of 
in terms of the economy, right? After hyperinflation, it was just yeah a nightmare. So how did they... So, slowly but surely, Strasbourg rebuilt Germany's prosperity. And under the Dawes plan, in which reparations um, payments were, were spread over a longer period, and 800 million marks in loans from the USA poured into German industry. Some of the money went into German businesses to help them replace old equipment with the latest technology. Some also went into public works, like swimming pools, sports stadiums, and apartment blocks. And as well as providing facilities, these projects also created jobs, solving the problem of Germany's mass unemployment. Yeah. So yeah, like you said, the Dawes plan ensured that reparations were, were spread over a longer period. So this eased the mounting pressure on the German economy. And of course, it was slowly reversing some of the terms we had in the Treaty of Versailles. So we, exactly. we're taking huge steps forward from the state of Germany in 1920. Mm. In 1928, Germany achieved the same level of, produ of production as before the war, and they were the second greatest industrial power in the world. This is quite frankly amazing. Considering yeah, it's they brilliant were, for Germany. Yeah. Definitely. Exports increased and welfare, and welfare benefits increased. However, like I said, all that glitters is not gold. As you can see, these, this economic recovery is very dependent on one country, the US. United States. The US loans agreed through the Dawes plan could be called at any point with a very short notice. So essentially this recovery is kind of dancing on a volcano. It is, hence the title. And if the US were to be struck by some great economic crash per se i mean i don't know <laughs> if one has ever yeah. happened but um it would be devastating for germany mm. furthermore there was a six percent unemployment rate by 1928 okay charlie what about foreign policy and their international position how did they recover in terms of that yeah so in german for germany um and straysman straysman's greatest uh, crimes were in foreign policy and international relations. In 1925, he signed the Locarno Treaties, guaranteeing um, not to try to change Germany's western borders with France and Belgium. So, for example, Alsace Lorraine. As a result, in 1926, Germany was accepted into the League of Nations. Huge step forward for Germany. And here, Straysman began to work quietly but steadily on reversing some of the terms of the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, particularly those concerning uh, reparations in Germany's eastern frontiers. But by the time he died in 1929, Straysman had also negotiated the Young Plan, which further lightened the reparations burden on Germany and led to the final removal of British, French and Belgian troops from the Rhineland. Yeah, so what we've got here, for, for really the first time since the war, Germany are in a strong negotiating trading position with other international powers they are finally becoming recognized once again in the international well, they, they, become, they become accepted back into the into the international world because Precisely. they're been seen as the bad boys of, of of geopolitical powers but they are now starting to 
make their way back into this you know circle of countries um in the league of nations and as well as just fully recovering economically and politically yeah. on the lacano treaties the signing of this pact in 1925 meant that germany accepted the treaty of versailles this was not received very well back home in germany nationalists attacked Strasbourg, not physically for joining the league of nations and for the acceptance of the treaty of versailles as it made germany look weak and humiliating accepting the defeat and the punishments of the allies okay now moving on to cultural achievements Charlie, what was the cultural picture looking like in the golden years? Yeah, so in Germany, there was a massive cultural revival. And in the Kaiser's time, there was very strict cens uh, censorship um, of pretty much everything. But the Weimar Constitution allowed free expression of ideas. So writers and poets uh, flourished, especially in the capital of Berlin. Artists in Weimar Germany turned their back on the old styles of painting to try to represent the reality of everyday life. And even when the reality was sometimes harsh and shocking, artists um, such as George Gross produced powerful paintings, I think called uh, Pillars of Society, which also criticised politicians and businesses, something, never, something that never would have happened um, in the German uh, imperial state. It showed them uh, to be callous and mindless, and other paintings highlighted how soldiers had been traumatised by their experiences in the war. And the famous Bauhaus style of design and architecture was developed in Weimar Germany. So something we're very, something we know a lot about today. Artists um, flourished as well, and the Bauhaus architects and designers rejected the traditional style um, in order to create new, exciting, modern uh, buildings. And they produced designs for anything from chairs, desk lamps, to art galleries and factories. The 1920s were also a golden age for German cinema, producing some of its greatest ever international stars, such as Marlene Dietrich and one of, one of its most celebrated directors, Fritz Lang. Berlin was famous for its daring and liberated nightlife. Going to clubs was just a major pastime for them, and in 1927, there were 900 dance bands in Berlin alone. So, no censorship, free expression, writers, poets and artists flourishing. Bauhaus architecture. Exhibitions attracted over 15,000 visitors. And of course, nightclubs became a staple of Weimar Republic German culture. However, this cultural boom or recovery wasn't appreciated by everyone. To people living outside the cities in more rural areas, the culture of cities represented moral decline and reflected the cultures of Americans and Jews. This idea called Van der Vergel, I hope I pronounced that right, called for a, a return to simple country values, which was reinforced by Adolf Hitler when he later got into power. It is for fair minds to judge whether the Weimar Republic recovered well. But in these years, we really see it as just an artificial recovery. It's not really real, is it? Because it relies, well, as you said, on one thing, one nation. 
the Americans. And what was to come was, of course, the Wall Street crash. In 1929, the American stock market crashed and sent the USA into a disastrous economic depression. Germany was probably more susceptible to the consequences of the USA's financial crash than any other country. Almost immediately, the American loans and investment dried up. And this was soon followed by demands for repayment of these loans, which had been advanced so willingly over the previous five years. At the same time, the crash precipitated a further decline in the prices of food and raw materials, as industrialized nations reduced their imports. World trade slumped as demand collapsed. In this situation, German industry could no longer pay its way. Unsupported by loans and with diminished export markets, prices and wages fell whilst the number of bankruptcies increased. During the winter of 1929 to 1930, unemployment in Germany rose above 2 million. Only 12 months after the crash, it had reached 3 million. And by September 1932, it stood at 5.1 million. And it peaked furthermore in early 1933, when 6.1 million Germans were unemployed. The situation of Germany is beginning to mirror what it was like back in 1923. It seems that all those years of recovery and achievements in the politics, in economics and in cultural revival has been overwritten by the crash of one country. Poverty was rampant throughout this Germany. For the depression in Germany was all pervasive. Few families escaped its detrimental effects. Many manual workers, both skilled and unskilled, faced the prospect of indefinite unemployment. For their wives, there was the impossible task of trying to feed families and keep homes warm on the money provided by poultry social security benefits. From the small scale shopkeepers to the graduate professionals in law and medicine, people struggled to survive in a world where their goods and services were decreasingly in demand. To many ordinary, respectable Germans, it must have seemed as if society itself was breaking down uncontrollably. And it is perhaps not so surprising that many people lost faith in the Weimar Republic because of this, which seemed to offer no end to the misery and began to see salvation in the solutions offered by political extremism. One party in particular takes full grasp of this ultimate. So that concludes this episode's history section. Next week, we will focus on the Nazi party, its origins, its rise, its accession to power, and what followed. Over the past episodes, we've spoken a bit about proportional representation. This was a considerable weakness of the Weimar constitution, as it led to lengthy delays in German parliamentary procedures, as very little could be agreed on by the weak coalition governments that were formed. Shockingly, we can draw a somewhat direct comparison from this to the UK government of today over the past four years. Since 2016, it has been almost impossible to go through a day without hearing Brexit being mentioned in the media, a topic that has baffled the British people and has baffled the British Parliament. This is what we'll be debating in today's political discussion. So now we're moving on to the political section. 
Today, we welcome our second guest on the Historic Present, Hugo. Hello. Oh, how are we? I'm very well, thank you, Hugo. And today, we are going to be discussing Brexit. Discussing Brexit will be Jonah and Hugo, and I'll be chairing the debate. Hello. So, firstly, aimed at both of you, were you pro-Brexit in the first place or against it? Jonah, you can start. Okay, well, going back to 2016, 11-year-old Jonah was more scared of waiting in longer lines in the airport and the fear of the English football team not being eligible to play in the European Championships for football. But now, of course, my picture is much bigger and I'm a completely different person to who I was back in 2016. Um, I'm more politically open and I do believe that right now in time, the best thing for this country is to insert slogan here, get Brexit done. Hugo, what do you think? Well, like, yeah, I mean, you know, 10 or 11 year old Hugo, again, uh, I think at the time I was just kind of following my parents' political uh, beliefs and opinions. So I wouldn't really say any of my, at the time, my uh, I was kind of influenced by bias uh, in that in that respect. But, uh, you know, my, my parents wanted to stay in the EU, you and so so did I basically so on the day I remember the day of the uh, election where I, I just came into school and everyone was panicking presumably because their parents had told them that Brexit was a, a bad thing but I think you know as I've grown up to have a political opinion and I've researched the subject more I think that you know they were probably right I think we definitely should have stayed in the in the European Union because the benefits uh, outweighed the negatives, you know, exponentially. So I think it, it's a very, it was a very foolish decision by David Cameron. I know his hands were tied, but I just think that the situation could have been handled better. Brilliant. Um, are your beliefs on the benefits of the European Union, and also what um, what are the cons as well of being part of the EU? Both. Okay. Uh, so, well, firstly, the benefits. Uh, let, let me speak first that one of the main reasons why I, I think we should have stayed in the European Union was due to the Brexit campaign and the campaigners that were, you know, the, the MPs that campaigned for Brexit. Because, like, most of the slogans, or at least 50% of the slogans, statements, any, anything they talked about were, were lies. I mean, in during the campaign, like... For example, the, the, the £350 million per week going to the NHS on the bus, that was the main Brexiteer slogan campaign. And it was found out to be just a, a, a downright lie. Like, we, we I think it was like 100, it's like 150 million where we, we spend in the European Union every week. So I don't know how, where the 350 just solely on the NHS would come from. No, I, think, so I, I, think it was, I think it was more than that, Hugh. I think it was about... I think it was, Billions, I think we spent yeah. a week. No, no, it's not every. No, no, that's. But I'm saying that the money that could have gone to the NHS. Yes. Oh, fine. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, so about, you, you talk about the yeah. the Brexiteers, the slogans of the Brexiteers. What 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 did the Remainers have to say? What what was their side of the argument? Well, their side of the argument was that we are better together. You know, it's like. It's it's very clear that the European Union helps out in in a in numerous ways. Is it? You know, like yeah. Well, I mean, 
it just means that we can we as British people can travel around Europe freely and openly and we don't have to pay any extra charges we can go and live abroad and it's just the same rules in the UK it's just it's convenience and it's I, I don't understand how you can think that we're better on our own because of the you know the single market trade deals everything like that is better when you're in the European Union do we look at nations such as Switzerland such as Norway as nations with core isolationism beliefs no we don't Norway are a core country in terms of um, trading and in terms of um, social living standards, as are Switzerland. So I don't think that Brexit, in any sense of the word, would have meant an isolated Britain completely separate from everyone else. I, I, dis I disagree because... Like, Switzerland have always been neutral. They've always kind of tried to stay out of things, especially, you know, world wars, they, they, they've remained neutral. So I think that Switzerland, in principle, that's they know how to do that. They know how to, you know, have good relationships with countries but not be part of, you know, a big organisation. Whereas, we, you know, we, we were with France, you know, talking about the war, we were with France and all those other countries. We were on our side, they were on our side. And the fact that the, we joined the EU so that we could be part of an alliance that helped each other out, helped other countries out. I mean, that, that is vital because we, as, you know, we, the British government, like, they're not, they're not great at handling things all the time on their own. And having assistance from Europe is, is of paramount importance, I think. Yes, but I really Can don't I see say, um, how at all the European Union have helped us in any, in any way at all. Well, like, okay, so... For example, if we leave the EU, if well, well, well sorry, if, no, we have, but leaving the EU is going to make us so much poorer as a country and so much economically, un so much more economically unstable. So, for example, uh, you know, half of British trade goes to the EU. Over, over half went to the EU, which which brings the country. I think it's like around four hundred billion every year. Yes, but of, of all that, that trade, of money you're paying. Of all that trade in the EU, so much of the money, so much of that trade are being hindered by EU tariffs. So such a large yeah. part of our export is to the EU, and we will still get that without the added tariffs. And furthermore, I, you said I it's disagree. bad for our economy. We will we, we spend eight over eight billion pounds a year on purely membership fees. The EU. Yeah, that but is... 400 billion compared to 8 billion is not much, Jonah. And the point is, the EU are not going to be very receptive of our trade deals after we just left. It's like, if you break up with your girlfriend, right? You're not going to become best friends straight away. You're not going to be oh. best mate. Like, like yeah. it's not something that happens. Like, it's the same thing. Is they're not going to want, they're not going to want to, you know, be very, you know, all cuddly, cuddly with us and make, make, trade deals keep us in the single market. That was the thing that Brexiteers were saying. We all oh, will still be in the single market, which we won't be, because why would anyone in the EU want us to be in the single market where we just left the EU? Membership can of I the EU. Say, um, Jonah, Jonah um, can I just say to, to Hugo, do you think it's a sense of comfort as the reason why, as reason as to why people will want to remain in the EU? Because it's something we've always known yeah. for many of us. It's, a, it's familiarity, really. It's yeah. that we knew when we were in the EU 
you know, there were there's obviously going to be negativity. There's negative. There's pros and cons of everything. But the point is, we knew that you know what money we were putting in, what money we were getting out. We had security in our economy when we were in the when the EU, and we knew that if you know financial crashes had happened, anything like that, we as a country could rely on support. You know, not just financial crashes, like any military aid, anything like that. We had a comfort in staying in the EU and leaving means we're sort of just on our own, really. And that's that's the thing why why Remainers were voting to stay in the EU is, yeah, it's the comfort, but it's just the security in, in funds and army support. Yeah, Go, yeah I mean, that's pretty Going, going me, back on your firm grasp, the membership of the EU has on Britain, I don't, I don't think we will ever compete with the likes of the states so long as we remain in the EU. It's subject I, Britain I to slow agree, and inflexible bureaucratic red tape, which really makes it prohibitive for the economy to grow. I, I completely disagree because the fact is we have an amicable relationship with the US and we have had trade we have trade deals with the US and we had them when we were in the EU. None of that would have changed. But it's just the security knowing that if if something goes wrong with the with the you know relationships between the UK and the US or any other traders we have with anyone in Asia, Africa, anywhere through South America. Whereas when you're in the EU, you know you have the security that those trade deals are still going to happen and you're going to be able to, you know, service that. And it's just protection. So, like, take the coronavirus, for example. Britain has, has, you know, obviously not handled the situation well. I mean, that's another debate, but we haven't. And the, the GDP decrease overall it has been so much larger. It, I think it's like 20 It's going to be projected to be like 20% in the UK, whereas it's like 10 to 15 in the EU as a whole, EU as a whole. So we would just have that protection, that security, that our, our economy would be able to bounce back after the coronavirus, whereas now we do not have that. Okay, thank you for that. Um, next question. The UK and the EU are still in talks about a deal right now. Yeah. It seems that whether we get a deal or not, Boris Johnson seems very set on us leaving the EU. What do you think the impact will be on the UK if we leave with no deal? Well, I think the impacts would be catastrophic, really, because the fact of the matter is, is we cannot survive as a country without amicable relations and amicable dealings with the EU. So leaving with no deal is is just it, it's the worst possible thing that could happen. And, the, you know, the, the stats prove that. And the, Britain are not arguing that no deal is a good thing. No one in Britain is saying that. Yeah. Because Boris Johnson, his main, his main slogan and campaign was get Brexit done. Get Brexit done. That's what he said the whole time. And get Brexit done does not involve us leaving without a deal with the EU, with the countries that are surrounding us. Theresa May, you know, failed to get a deal, failed to get a deal. And this is why that, the, the impact of that referendum was so catastrophic on the UK, is that... If I was a member of the EU Commission, uh, you know, member of the EU Committee, I would not want to make a deal with the UK. But the point is, the UK cannot survive without a deal, and that is why we should not have voted Leave in the EU referendum, because the, the, the no deal is just not not a, a viable option for us. 
yes, Hugo, I 100% agree. And I'm sure all 60 million of us Britons 100% agree that a no-deal Brexit would be an absolute humiliating end to this four-year saga of political hilarities. It will be felt by the farmers. It will be felt by the fishermen who will have complete control of their waters. Jobs will have an improved global trade agreement. And more selective immigration could have could have a positive effect on the British job market. And I'm not saying I'm not one of those Brexiteers whose attitude on immigration is to enforce such hard borders, but it will improve the job market, which will in turn improve our economy. But once again, I reiterate, I, I'm not. I really, I strongly disagree with that because. The fact of the matter is, is I think it's one in 10 jobs in the UK are directly linked to EU membership. So membership fees we're paying, yes, there are a lot, but the jobs that are linked to those to that membership, they're, they're, they're one in 10. That's a, a crazy amount that, that we're just throwing away. And I think that, you know, in, in terms of immigration, the, the, the thing that Preeti Patel posted, you know, um, Put up, put out there the other day is frankly disgusting. Frankly disgusting. The fact that you're just going to abandon immigrants that are coming in that they don't have a life where they live. They don't have a life. They've escaped harsh, harsh, harsh areas. And what we're saying is, well, no, we don't. We don't want you here. I mean, I just don't think you can do that. I don't think countries have the the, the high ground to stand on to say that you can't do that. I think in December from this year, in December this year, if you are, you know, outside the, if you are from outside the UK and you're sleeping on the street, the police can, will be able to pick you up and it, it will be a, a, a reason for deportation straight away. I mean, I don't, I just don't know how you can turn away that as many people from, from jobs that, okay, so jobs that British people don't really want to do. I mean, jobs that need to get done that the immigrants will happily take immigrants will happily take any job they can get whereas there's some british people will turn their noses up at jobs and the, the thing is is that like that those immigrants are much more hard working than british people at those jobs so for example let's take i don't know let's take um okay a, a leaf sweeping job on the street so you have to sweep you know sweep all the leaves up a british person doing that who needs that job I guarantee you will put in less effort than an immigrant who is very grateful for that job, whereas a British person is just sort of turning their nose up at it. They're, you know, not doing their job very well because they just can't really be bothered. That's our attitude. But like, I just, I, I completely disagree that, I, I, I completely disagree when, when you say that immigration will, you know, immigration hinders our country. I completely disagree with that. I think that it improves it drastically. That. I did not say that. And, and well, I mean, you are along the lines of that. You said that the British people would have more control, I, which, I, which I implies that immigrants that. will have I said the job market would open up as a result of Brexit. It will have a positive effect on the how, British job how market. So? How so? What jobs will be available now to British people, or just in, in general, not just British people in general, because of, uh, because of Brexit? Well, it's just common sense. If you've got... 100 people applying to one job or you've got 20 people applying to one job 
your chance of getting that job is going to be higher if there are 20 of you rather than 100. I would much rather have 100 people applying for my job than 20 because logically 100 people applying one of them will be a lot better than the others at that job but you're, that leaves a higher unemployment board. rate which once again no, but... will create but i just want to draw the picture if we do leave the european union without a deal we will still benefit no matter what so either we benefit or we benefit hugely deals will help our economy how do you make that happen? okay how do you so once again i raise the membership fees eight billion pounds pumped back into our budget and spending Is per, uh, per year uh, per year yes we, we spend 14 billion pounds per year and we get back five around five from the european union Consumer goods, EU VAT contributions and agri apologies, agricultural subsidised policies cost UK consumers hundreds of pounds each year. This won't just be felt by those debating in the Commons today. It will be felt by us. No, because I think that with the you know the growing you know growing use of technology and 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 such in the world around us. There will be new jobs that were not a you know not a thing a few years ago. There'll be new jobs coming in that people need to do, and the fact of the matter is, is you want as a country we want the best people taking those jobs, the best person. And I don't think it really matters where they were born, where they come from. It's just the best people for that job. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question, well, slightly off topic from that. You said how important our how important our um, friendship, let's put, were with Europe um, is and how important it would be. So do you not care how limited Britain's international influence would be with a continued EU membership, ruling out an independent seat at the WTO, the World Trade Organization? Do you, do you not care about that? Or is it only Europe? No, but I think that... Europe, if you're in the EU, the European Committee and people who are holding that WHO seat, you know, the, the world seat, will act in the best interest of people in Europe. And it's not like that. The, but we're the, not you know, going Europe, to those meetings. we're Britain. Surely we'd want Britain I'm representing not... Britain and all the multiculturalism of Britain rather than Albania, Greece, France, Belgium and Britain and Britain. No, because we will have an influence on, you know, we're the fifth biggest economy in, you know, in, in Europe and in the, you know, across the world. So the fact is we will have a high influence over what is going to be said at those meetings, no, no matter what. So I think that be, being in the EU just means that we can have a united front against, you know, against other countries that have different opinions. I think that if we are together we'll just be we will be stronger the, the, together you know that that's just a fact i think but other than a nice moral friendship concept i don't really see how being together sticking together works in the sense of countries i don't think it's about morality i think it's like it's just it's just the fact that if you're in the European Union, you, you can you can help each other out 
it's not just like you know a friendship thing it's the fact that we can help each other out on trade deals on fighting terrorism fighting but it doesn't help us uh, in know, trade deals well it, well it does because the fact is the deals that we are doing with the eu are safe deals they're deals we know are going to be exactly but we can secure but so much more so much better developed deals that will allow us to compete this goes back to an earlier point that will allow us to compete with the major global economies of the states and but there's, there's, there's India. a higher risk than that there's a higher risk with that what's the because... point of playing safety we've been playing safe for what 70 years <laughs> safe is good jonah it's good because if you take risks then it could backfire not just on the economy but on every british person and it's in our interest and in the british public's interest to have safety and if we you know, let's say we ruin our relationship because Boris Johnson has the capability and with Donald Trump especially to ruin our relationship with the US. That trade, you know, that any possible traders we could have had with the US will be, you know, eradicated and will not have the safety and the safety net of the EU trade deals to back that up. Okay, so what if we flipped okay. it? What if we weren't in the e EU and we had strong trade deals? Would you then say joining a European Union would be a risk. Would that be a massive risk? Sorry, can you just repeat your point a second? Sorry, I just cut out. So then would you propose the argument if we weren't in the EU and for however many decades we were a strong country with a with great trade deals and then we had an election in 2016 saying, should we join this European Union? Would you then say that would be another risk in the, how we're safe now? <laughs> I, I would, I, I would, because the point is, is that like we've been in the EU for decades and that's safe and that's what we know. Whereas if it was the opposite, I would say exactly the same thing. If we had safe trade deals with other exact countries, we wanted to join. It's the unknown. Guys, guys, listen, listen, it's been a brilliant debate, but we're going to run out of time. It's been brilliant. We've had, we've loved having you on, uh, Hugo. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. It's been fantastic. Um, brilliant discussion about such a hot topic of late and something that's really been a burden to us over the last four years. That's all for now. Thank you. And that concludes the third episode of the Historic Present podcast. Thank you very much, Hugo, for coming on today and giving us with some excellent political content. And we hope to have you on again sometime soon. Let us know who you think won the debate, either me or Hugo, by commenting the winner on the latest Instagram post on at the historic present pod. Next week, we look deep into the Nazi party and its rise to power with the help of one very special guest. So that's a wrap. It's goodbye from me. Goodbye. And goodbye, goodbye. from Charlie. Goodbye.